All right, good morning, Crossway. Uh, it's always a privilege to be able to share uh, God's word with you guys. Um, today we're continuing in the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 7. And I think it's a very fitting passage for us as a church, just in light of the fact that we recently celebrated our 10-year anniversary at our church uh, last month. Uh, you know, at the 10-year anniversary, it's an opportunity for us to look back and thank God and remember, remember his faithfulness uh, throughout the past 10 years of just how he's been working and growing his kingdom through our church. But it's also an opportunity for us to look ahead, to look ahead and with excitement, anticipation, to see what God has in store for our church in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, but it's also very important, I think, as we're looking ahead and with excitement and anticipation to also not forget what brought us to this point and not to, not to forget the essential things, the foundational things. And I think that's what Mark chapter 7 provides for us, right? In Mark chapter 7, it's an interesting story. It's an interesting uh, passage because the, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, right? And, you know, I'm not here to rebuke anyone or the church or anything like that. But it's interesting because the Pharisees at that time were the leaders of the, you know, the de facto church, I guess you could call it at the time, the religious institution, where everyone came to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees to, to connect with God, right? And so they were the religious institution that everyone looked to to see God, and yet they failed, and we see this because Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in two ways. And I want us to see these uh, two ways that Jesus rebukes them because I think it's an opportunity for us to take a look at them, to learn from their failures, to learn from their mistakes, and to remember the foundational things for our church, to never lose sight of these things as we move on forward uh, in these next 10, 20, 30 years. So I want to set the scene for you guys in Mark chapter 7. Up to this point, what's been going on, what you need to know is that there's just been ton of miracles, right? Jesus has been healing uh, lepers, exercising demons. He's raising people from the dead. He's teaching insightfully, uh, preaching powerfully. He's feeding the 5,000, and he's just doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And as a result, what we see, that what Mark says after every miracle is that the crowds were amazed. The crowds were astonished, and they were just going bonkers. They were following him everywhere to the point where they... The, the, Jesus and his disciples couldn't even eat and sit down because they didn't have time because they were pressing upon them so often. And his influence and his popularity was beginning to grow. And this, uh, key, point is this key point is important because as a result, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, their influence, their popularity was weaning. They were starting to lose influence over the masses. Now people were starting to ask, yeah, how come the Pharisees don't teach so insightfully or so powerfully as Jesus does? You know, how come they can't uh, do the same type of miracles and they're not as powerful as Jesus is? And they began to question uh, the Pharisees. And so what we see is by even as early as chapter 3, the Pharisees and the leaders, they all got together and they made a commitment to destroy Jesus, right? In verse 6, it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They've already decided this is bad for business. This is bad for our church. We're losing uh, influence and popularity. We need to get rid of Jesus. Right? And so this is the setting that we find ourselves in. 
what they need to do now, the Pharisees, what they need to do is find a moment when Jesus is weak. Find a moment when he's contradicting himself in scripture, disobeying the law or in sin, whatever it might be, so that they can point it out, tell the crowd, and they can say, yeah, see, he's a sinner, so you need to follow us, right? They're trying to find that one moment. So this is what we see in Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? So the beginning of chapter 7, what happens is the local Pharisees of that town, they call the scribes of Jerusalem. Now, this is important because the scribes of Jerusalem, they're the big time, right? If the local Pharisees were like uh, lawyers from a small local area like, I don't know, Wichita, Kansas or something, it's, I don't want to offend anyone if you're from Wichita, Kansas, but say you're from like a small community, right, and you're the local lawyer. Well, the scribes from Jerusalem were the lawyers from Beverly Hills in New York. They were the big time, right? And so the, the local Pharisees couldn't trap Jesus or find him in any sin, so they said, hey, we need your help. So they brought the big guns in. And they come down, and they're trying to find something, again, wrong with Jesus, some inconsistency, some sin. And so they go to where Jesus is eating. He's finally dining with his disciples. You know, and remember, in the, in the busyness, it's hard for them to even find a meal, uh, a moment to find a meal. And they, they find a meal, a, a moment to time, a moment to eat. And the scribes see disciples and Jesus, and they say, oh, there it is, right there. Hey, come on, Pharisees, you guys didn't even see this? They didn't wash their hands before they ate. You're supposed to wash your hands before you eat. According to the tradition of elders, you're supposed to wash your hands. Now, what is the tradition of elders? The tr tradition of elders was a series of commands and rituals and things that uh, the Pharisees and the scribes created in order to protect people from disobeying the word of God. So they, if the word of God and the commandments are here, they created a fence, a tradition of elders that you uh, could not, that, that were commandments that you should not break or could not break so that you wouldn't break the tradition of elders or that you wouldn't break uh, the commandments. Now, these extra laws that they created, there were over thousands of these laws. And in actuality, instead of preventing people from sin, it caused an unnecessary burden from God's commands because there were more laws that they had to obey. Oftentimes, it even went against God's commands. And in this passage, they were misinterpreting God's commands. So, for example, in this idea of hand washing, the tradition of elders said you have to wash your hands before you eat, but that wasn't a command that God himself gave. In Leviticus, the command that actually was given was that the priests, when they were to offer a sacrifice before God, they had to wash their hands because they were offering something holy to the Lord. And so as they were offering something holy to the Lord, they said, we need to be cleansed, so we need to wash our hands. Now the Pharisees took that command and said, hey, that's a good idea. Why don't we make a tradition of elders law that says, not only the priests, but everyone, if you want to eat, you have to wash your hands. And they had this whole ritual, a cleansing process, where you had to wash your hands. Now it's nice to make you know, a ritual to clean your hands for hygiene's sake, but that was not the case here. 
what we see is that Jesus responds to this in a very aggressive way, right? In Mark chapter 7, verse 6 through 7, he says this. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He calls them hypocrites, and you think, wow, Jesus, you know, why don't you just like, I don't know, turn the other cheek? You know, why is this such a big deal? We're just talking about washing our hands. But there was a deeper issue. There was a, a big issue that was so much more important than just the issue of washing hands. And it was the issue of authority. The issue of who are you going to obey? You see, the tradition of elders was here, and he said that you had to wash your hands before uh, you, you ate, but if you didn't, you were in sin. Now, that was something that the word of God never had commanded. But because the Pharisees had created this, they were creating their own laws, telling people you're in sin if you don't obey the laws that we created. And they were create, they, they, what they were doing is they were raising the tradition of elders, the thousands of laws that they made, they're raising it to be on par with the word of God, the commandments of God. That's why in verse 7 he says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're taking the commandments of men and saying, this is doctrine. You have to obey this or else you're a sinner or else you're unclean and you're defiled. Right? The issue that Jesus had with the Pharisees was one of authority. That they took their own commands that they created and raised it up to be on par or even superseding the commandments of God. And this is the first pillar. This is something that as a church, you know, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, but for us as a church, we need to be steadfast in. That as we move forward in the next 10 years, that we remember that we are steadfast in the authority of the word of God. That we hold to the authority of the word of God. That we're obedient to the word of God as a church. There is no higher authority than the word of God. You know, and at times it will be difficult, you know, especially in this constantly changing culture where you know, the word of God is no longer, in, not just in style, but you can become persecuted. You can be persecuted, uh, pressured, even prevented from obeying the word of God at times. But in these times, as we move forward, God calls us to hold to the word of God. And I think that's one of the main commitments that we have as our church. That's why, you know, when we preach, we go over books of the Bible. That's what we're, we're preaching through DBS, discipleship Bible study, going over the life of Abraham. We have a commitment to stand firm in the word of God, uh, even in the constantly changing culture. But not only in the church, but even for ourselves, in our personal lives, is the word of God authoritative in our lives? You know, the word of God is not just a mere book of opinions, but it is God's very word spoken to us, right? You know, if you had a piece of furniture from Ikea and you had to build it, it would be foolish to take the instructions and throw it away, right? Because those are the blueprints for how to construct the furniture properly. And that's what God gives us through his word. Now, one, one way to really consider, you know, are we, is the word of God authoritative in my personal life? You know, a few things to really consider is questions like this, you know, do we turn to the word of God for discernment when we have questions? You know, are we in the word of God to hear what God's word has to say? Um, does it inform the way we raise our kids or does it permeate our politics or 
Are we obedient to God's word even when it is difficult? Does it guide how we date? All of these little things. Or is it oftentimes our lifestyle, our choices are based on whatever is most convenient, uh, whatever saves us the most money, uh, whatever makes us happy or makes us feel good or if it makes us look good, right? Do those things enforce and influence our decisions and our lifestyle? Or is it the word of God? The word of God needs to be authoritative in our church and in our own individual lives. And so that's the first pillar. You know, as we look past in the past 10 years and look forward to the next 10, 20, 30 years, we need to make sure that we stand firm in the authority of the word of God, that we don't shift or change or waver in any circumstance, right? But there's another rebuke, right? Jesus gives another rebuke to the Pharisees and now to the people. And it's one of uncleanliness. What makes someone clean and what makes someone unclean, right? Because remember, the Pharisees were saying that the disciples were unclean because they didn't wash their hands, right? And we're not talking about hygiene, right? Of course, they probably would have been unclean hygienically if they didn't wash their hands. But they're talking about religiously, before the people, you know, Remember, the Pharisees and the scribes and the spiritual leaders, in a religious society, they were the end-all, be-all in terms of who you were socially, economically, uh, your, your social standing, everything. They determined all that. So if they declared you unclean, you were ostracized, you, were outspoken, you, you wouldn't have a job, everything. It, it was very difficult for you to live in a religious society where you were deemed unclean, right? And so the issue here is what makes you clean and unclean? The Pharisees were saying, if you don't wash your hands before you eat, if you eat certain foods, all these things that you might do and you don't do uh, cleansing rituals or purify yourself, it will make you unclean. But Jesus responds to this and really teaches them, no, that's not the case. This is what makes you unclean, right? So this is Mark chapter 7, 14 to 19. And he called the people to him again and said to him, said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And Jesus, so in this passage, he's saying, Guys, what? is on the external, what goes outside, the things that you touch, the things that you eat, those do not defile you. Those do not make you unclean and make your relationship with God uh, deter. The things on the outside that you take in, the foods and all that stuff, they're just expelled outside. They don't affect your heart. They do not defile you. And so you have to understand, in this, again, religious culture, for these people to hear something like this, this must have been so freeing because their whole life, they're wondering, man, did I do something to defile myself? Did I not properly wash my hands? Did I eat something accidentally? Did I touch something that I shouldn't have accidentally? Did I do this ritual? Did I keep this tradition of elders, the thousands of extra commands that these elders and Pharisees made? Did I keep those to the T? And there's, and they were so convoluted. The Pharisees had so convoluted what was truly God's commands and what were the tradition of elders 
that they were confused about and burdened by what do I really need to obey? But here Jesus is saying, guys, it's not about washing of hands. It's not about what you eat. It's not about the external because it does not affect your heart. And you can imagine just a, a huge sigh of relief, right? Man, it's not about all of these things. He declared all foods clean. I don't have to worry if I'm making these little mistakes that I didn't even know about. It's about the heart. But I think the next part actually ruins them. And it flips it upside down again. Because in verse 20, 23, he says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and you defile a person. So it's the highest of highs, right? Jesus is telling them, hey, don't worry about it. You're not defiled by these things that you touch or eat or whatever. It's about the heart. And they're like, amen, it's about my heart. He says, in the heart comes all kinds of evil. You're a sinner. You're messed up. You're screwed up. Think about all the things that are coming out of your heart. And it's like, oh, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm messed up. Uh, who's blameless before anyone? Like, even for us as a church, how many of us can say we're blameless? When we look at this list, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, how, how many of us can say we're blameless in our hearts? Because out of the heart comes these evil thoughts. And what Jesus is telling them is, hey, it's not a works issue. It's a heart issue. Your heart is ruined. It's messed up. Out of the heart comes all of these evil things. Now, I think this rebuke is very relevant and important for us here at church and our society today because no one wants to be called a sinner nowadays, right? I mean, whoever wants to really be called a sinner, even in the past days, right? But in the age of, you know, just being as encouraging as possible and we're trying to uplift people as much as possible, and that's really great, there's no room for discouraging. And being called a sinner is very discouraging, but what it does is that it ends up putting a blinder on our reality, and we don't understand that we truly are sinners. You know, one example is like, society today, it's all about what's inside, right? So don't judge a book by its cover. It's all about the heart inside, like Beauty and the Beast, right? You look at Beast, and yeah, he might look a little scary or a little ugly on the outside, but inside, his heart is good, right? And that's what society cares about. It's they care about, oh, yeah, every person inherently is a good person. They're really nice, right? And they might be going through all this stuff, but we're all good people. But Scripture goes to the contrary of that. He says, if you really want to see what's coming out of the heart, there's evil thoughts. All of this. I mean, even if you look at Beast, right? He struggled with anger. He was always yelling at people. He kidnaps a princess or Belle and imprisons her, right? They're, out of the heart, evil things come out, right? I don't know why people think he's a good guy. But he's a sinner. All of us, that is the foundation that we need to understand that we are not blameless, that we are sinners, that out of the heart, all of us can admit that we are unclean, that we are defiled. So how can we purify our hearts then, hearts that are defiled? And, you know, when I was first preparing this message, I thought, you know, if our hearts are what matter, and what comes out of the heart is evil thoughts and unclean things, that's what defiles us. What we need to do is put in our hearts, our minds, 
good things, pure things, right? So maybe go to DBS or read the Bible more or be in community and share and encourage one another or listen to more Christian music and do all these things, right? And I was thinking about it. And what I realized was that was not what was needed. Because none of these things will ever truly purify a defiled heart. If that's what we think is what purifies our heart, that leads to becoming just like the Pharisees. The Pharisees who created a tradition of elders, a series of laws that said, hey, if you just do these things, you'll be right with God. That were apart from God's commands. Say, you have to come to DBS. And so all of a sudden, it's like, if you miss, it's like, what? I can't believe you missed that DBS, man. You're a sinner. I can't believe you didn't go to 6 to 8, man. You're... These things cannot purify us. We become like Pharisees if we start saying, if we do this ritual, and we do this activity, that will be what purifies us. But what we see in Scripture here, in the very next passage, is this is how we are purified. This is how we are made pure. And it comes in a passage about a Syrophoenician woman. And now I'm going to close with this passage. But I want us to see how this lady is purified, her and her daughter. Right? And I want to read it for us, if you could follow along. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 says, And from there he arose, Jesus, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, I, I think Mark purposely places this passage right after uh, Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees because this issue of uncleanliness and defilement is answered right in this passage, right? Let's think about all the ways that this lady is defiled. She is of all defiled and unclean people, she is at the bottom of the totem pole, right? First of all, she is a Syrophoenician Gentile woman, which means that she doesn't obey God's commands. Not even, she wouldn't even consider obeying the tradition of elders. So the Jewish society and the culture would deem her unclean because of that. But not only that, her daughter has an unclean spirit. Now it's cool because Mark, purposely uses the term unclean spirit. Whereas in Matthew, uh, he says it's a severely, that the baby, the child was severely oppressed by a demon. I think Mark purposely uses the word unclean to show that this lady and her daughter are just completely unclean. From a social perspective, before uh, Pharisees and everyone, you know, because they're, they don't keep any of the commands, but also spiritually, they have an unclean spirit in them. They're the, they're the most defiled person that you can think of. And yet, how is this person cleansed? Jesus, she comes, approaches Jesus, and she asks that the, Jesus would heal her daughter because she's heard of these miracles. 
And Jesus says, it's not right for me to feed the dogs. I have to feed the children first. And what, what he's saying is the children of Israel, the Jewish people, they, they felt like we were God's chosen, so we are God's children. And they had called everyone else, the Gentiles and everyone, a derogatory term, dogs, right? And Jesus is reminding, them, reminding her of this Jewish cultural society, societal structure. He says, I have to bless these people first. Feed them first. And it's not right for me to feed the dogs uh, before them. And she says, yes, I understand that. But even the dogs receive the crumbs of the children. That the crumbs would fall off the table and they could receive those crumbs. She had completely humbled herself. And this is what Jesus wanted to see in her. That she understood she was defiled. She understood that she was completely sinful and a sinner. And that the only hope that she would have is to receive a crumb from Jesus. An act of grace from Jesus. The only way that someone is purified, someone who is defiled and uh, unclean, is through the work of Jesus Christ. Right? Only Jesus Christ can purify and cleanse this woman and all of us from our sins. No one here is blameless, right? All of us, when we think about what comes out of the heart, even this morning, you can say, I'm guilty. I'm defiled. I'm unclean. And yet it's not the Bible studies, it's not uh, doing more acts of goodness that purifies us, but it's looking to Jesus, trusting in Jesus. That should free us. That should free us from the burden of thinking, man, I've, I've done so much, uh, you know, I've, I've sinned so much this week. I, I need to go to church or I need to read the Bible more. I need to, I need to do X, Y, and Z to be purified. No. To be purified, we need to place our faith in Jesus Christ. What this Syrophoenician woman did not know, and the Pharisees what did not know that we have the privilege of knowing today, is that on the other side of the cross, we have now been purified by the work of Jesus Christ. By him hanging on that cross, he takes all our defilement, all our uncleanliness, all our sin, and he dies for those takes the punishment of that, and we are made pure. We are made pure by his sacrifice. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when we place our faith in him, he is faithful. and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is, you know, I, I was talking about the first thing that we need to make sure that we uphold is the authority of the word of God. And now the second point is this. It's, it's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, of him coming down to earth, living the perfect life, dying on the cross for sinners such as us, unclean, defiled people such as us. That's the gospel that he paid for our sins, and now we have a new life for us. We, we have a new life in him. And what's crazy is that now the gospel becomes the motivation. It becomes the why for everything that we do. 
in our own personal lives, it's the reason why we worship. It's the reason why we thank the Lord. It's the reason why we serve him. It's the reason why we pursue him more and more. But it's not just a personal response towards God, but it's also a response towards others. The gospel where God saves sinners like us moves us to serve others, to share the gospel with others so that they would be saved as well, to, do, to do, be involved with social justice matters. All of these things are founded on not us trying to be cleansed, but because we've been cleansed by the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's my prayer for us here today as we you know, finish up the past 10 years and as we look forward to the next 10, 20 years that, you know, there might be grand dreams of, man, I wish, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, our church would just blow up or it'd be so big or we could have our own building or, you know, whatever it might be. You, we might have hopes and dreams, but beyond all that, what a successful church would look like in 10 to 20 years if we, is if we could look back on it and say, we were faithful to the word of God. The word of God was authoritative to us and we were moved by the gospel. That the work of Christ was what truly impacted us and moved us to act as Christ did for us. So I pray that that would be the foundation of what we do moving forward here at this church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this grace that you've poured out in our lives. God, we acknowledge and confess and repent that out of our hearts comes evil thoughts impure thoughts, Lord. We're sinners at the core of who we are. And yet, it was you, Jesus, who came to this earth, who took our uncleanliness and the judgment that it deserved, and you paid it on a cross, dying, suffering, losing fellowship with God, on our behalf, Lord. And so I pray that as a church, we would never forget the gospel, that that would be our motive and that would move us to serve you, to serve your people, to pursue you, to worship you. And that the gospel and the word of God would be the two foundations that we hold on to until you're to come. So we thank you for this opportunity, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.